hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Sophie Dunselman, and at this episode of The Ballpark, we're going to take a look at American foreign policy. We will raise a lot of questions and even attempt at answering some. World affairs are far from simple. Breaking news now. Some breaking news for you European just now. North US Korea has launched a ballistic missile against the Trans-Pacific And so to streamline our conversation, we're going to take a look at American foreign policy from three key perspectives. Power, the person, and the people. Starting with power, what is American power like today? How is it changing? Is it in decline? And how can it be measured? And the person, how much does the American president matter? How do the major players differ in their approaches to foreign policy? How important is the person of the president on these issues? That's Nick Kitchen. He's an assistant professorial research fellow in the U.S. Center here at LSE and an expert on these issues. Lastly, the people. Do the advisors around the president matter? What about Congress? What about the millions of people in the United States and the billions of people around the world who interact with America? So the question is not so much, can America lead, but will anybody else follow? That's Xenia Wicket, one of the UK's fourth most experts on world affairs, particularly those relating to the US. We'll hear more from her in a little while. But how do all of these figures affect the United States and its uses of power? Well, it is a big question. It really is. And so we'll have Nick Xenia and other experts on American foreign policy to help us tackle the big questions currently surrounding American power. All right. Let's bring this to order. Since the middle of the 20th century, the United States came into its role as a major world power, causing scholars, members of the international community, and even Americans themselves to debate whether or not the U.S. is in decline. And it's, it's a narrative, certainly, that's politically important, and it's a narrative that, that has a long history to it. There have been cycles of this decline narrative over the years. After the Vietnam War, after Watergate, this question continues to pop up. Is America and its power in decline. Of course, in the 1990s, this all goes away. Uh, conversations about whether Japan or the EU overtakes the United States completely go away. Um, the United States becomes the unipolar power, a superpower beyond compare, an empire. Um, and then we get to 9-11 and the response to 9-11, in particular Iraq and the financial crisis, and, and then this, uh, this whole narrative comes back and revives again. However, the person currently in the Oval Office doesn't agree with these decline narratives. In fact, he is actively denying them. What I think is particularly interesting here, though, is how Obama and his State of the Union really responds to this notion of decline and his, his denial of it. I told you earlier, all the talk of America's economic decline is political hot air. Well, so is all the rhetoric you hear about our enemies getting stronger and America getting weaker. And he has three formulations. Um, on the economy, he says, things are improving under me on the economy, therefore the United States can't be in decline. On issues of whether you know, Chinese military spending is closing the gap, he says, the gap is large. We spend more on our military than the next eight nations combined. Our troops are the finest fighting force in the history of the world. Therefore, the United States can't be in decline. 
And when he talks about America's reputation and standing in the world, he says, we're really the only option. There's, there's no alternative. And when it comes to every important international issue, people of the world do not look to Beijing or Moscow to lead. They call us. Therefore, we can't be in decline. Now, this is not just a feature of presidential speech writing. This is not just something that you know, the White House does as a, uh, as a marketing exercise. This is reflected across academic debates about decline. The vast majority of studies don't have any kind of comprehensive set of indicators. Instead, they sort of paint broad brush impressionistic pictures of what's going on here. Um, and I think it's important for us to try and think about um, how we can understand power in a more comprehensive way. So in order to understand American power and how it waxes and wanes, Nick says we need to look at it and to measure it and study it in a comprehensive manner. So what does that look like? What would be included in these comprehensive set of indicators? What factors should we be taking into account? Now this is a problem. We don't really know. Which for international relations scholars, you know, the key concept of your discipline is supposed to be power is uh, something of a major oversight. But it's a theoretical problem and it's, it's very much at the, the heart of this uh, idea of power. We normally think of power in the coercive sense, the ability of actor A to get actor B to do something they wouldn't normally do. Um, and that's a, you know, you measure that as an outcome. If you don't want to do something and I come along and I make you do it and I'm successful in that endeavour, I, I was powerful in that social relationship. Well, that's not particularly helpful um, if you are trying to think about who's powerful in the world. You, you only know after the fact. So instead, a more useful definition of power looks at capabilities, such as military power, the ability to grow an economy, or to extract resources from that economy. There's also soft power capabilities, and that's again where the person, the president, really comes into play. Let's take the current head of state. Let me, let me tell you something. The United States of America is the most powerful nation on earth, period. Obama is suggesting that the U.S. is still dominant in terms of those capabilities. But if this truly is the case, then why can't we simply dismiss these decline narratives? Well, Nick says, there's still a fundamental flaw in the way we're looking at power. Most of the time, GDP, the amount of money flowing through a country's economy, is the primary measure of these capabilities. And we focus on GDP because we, we retain that basic assumption that at the end of the day, money buys you military capability and military capability is the final arbiter. And I'm less sure that this is true um, or at least it may be less true than it previously was it's more difficult to convert economic power into military power today than it was 100 years ago um, when Germany could decide to become a naval power and become a naval power within a few, a few years and Nick has pointed out a few reasons why you can't just purchase power anymore first of all you simply can't do that today, given the technological requirements of fifth-generation fighter aircraft, for example. These are um, programs which take decades 
to put together. So accumulating or developing the technology of military might, such as a fleet of highly advanced fighter jets, is a time-intensive activity. Secondly, we don't use military power in the same way we used to. It was okay in the 19th century and early 20th century. You, you rolled your tanks to the borders of another state. You, know, you decided you know, military power was the arbiter in that sense. Nuclear weapons changed that. Um, but broader ideas about whether military power is um, either a legitimate or a useful tool uh, changed that. I think third... Third is where the people come in. We have to consider who is, in fact, under this power. What is the nature of contemporary populations who are living under and reacting to these uses of power? People today are far more educated than they were in previous generations. They are uh, much, much more informed. They have much more access to free and open communications. Um, and potentially as a result, they are far less different to established authorities. There's this question that pollsters have been asking in the United States for the best part of 50 years, which is, do you believe that your government will do the right thing most of the time? I personally find this a very odd question to ask. You know, it's, it's a question about deference to authority, and I, I, I simply was not brought up <laughs> to believe that that's something I should, I should do. But the numbers on this are stark. Yeah, they're, they're pretty high, 60-70% through the 1960s. They drop after, after Watergate in particular, down to sort of low 20s. But they never recover. Yeah, they, they bob along between sort of 25-30% through uh, the 1980s, 1990s, and, and up to today. Those numbers are striking. Since Watergate, less than a third of the American population has trusted its government to generally do the right thing. And that means that if you're under 40 in the United States, and the same is true across you know, the Western world, you've lived your entire life in a country where the majority of the population don't trust their government to do the right thing most of the time. And it strikes me that that makes it very difficult for that government to exert power. So we have a well-educated and skeptical population that's changing the power dynamics of the United States. That brings us back to the question. I wonder how the impact of the whoever is president, how does that play out in terms of what a foreign policy strategy looks, looks like? How important is the person of the president on these issues? So I think there are a number of factors you have to think about. That is Xenia Wicket. Dean of the Academy and head of the U.S. program at Chatham House. Xenia has also held high-level posts at the U.S. State Department, launched the Peace Nexus Foundation, and worked for UNICEF, among many other roles in international affairs. She recently came to the LSE for a gathering of international relations experts in the U.S.-EU working group of the Derendorf Forum. There's first of all, um, what's the context? So the nature of the environment in which the president is actually going to be implementing policy. And I think we tend to forget that. You know, if you've got another 9-11 event, how does that change what you do? The second part of it is forget for a moment what happens in the U.S., but how is the rest of the world seeing it, particularly in the current debate with the current kind of um, the level of the debate today? There's an awful lot of internationals who look at America and say, Really? Is this the America we know? So the question is not so much can America lead, but will anybody else follow? I think there's some questions in that space. And then, of course, you've got the not just the personality of the new president, but the team they have around them. 
Who are they? So the people around the president, but also the people representing the public in Congress. The checks and balances the American system has within it, which is to say, uh, even if you get, let's say you get Hillary Clinton winning, we know that the House is going to be Republican, so she's going to be fighting against a Republican House and possibly a Republican Senate. If you get Donald Trump winning, again, there are enough Republicans who are against him even if you end up with a Republican House and Senate, he is also going to be pushing back hard against the check and balance that is Congress and the judiciary. So when it comes to the power of the person, the power of the president? The, the influence of the individual is, in the American system, um, important but far less important than it would be in a European, in, in the UK, for example. But I guess I would, I would disagree slightly with the concern that the new president, whoever he or she will be, would not be able to get policies through a divided Congress. That's Lloyd Gruber. He is the former dean of the Institute of Public Affairs here at the London School of Economics. I think that is probably the case on domestic affairs, domestic issues. But Congress, members of Congress, they're beholden to their districts. People in their districts don't care all that much about foreign policy. They don't vote on the basis of foreign policy. The foreign policy has not been, aside from the immigration issue, it's, it's really economic issues that, that decide elections. But I want to come back to this, this question of the teams around uh, the candidates and you know, the, you know, what their potential teams looks like. I mean, we've been talking a lot today about liberal internationalism. President Obama had a a liberal internationalist team. Right? He had Anne-Marie Slaughter as director of policy planning. You know, he's got Hillary at, at, at state. He's got Samantha Power. You, know. um, you couldn't get, I don't think, a much more liberal internationalist <laughs> policy team. Yeah. And Let's pause here. What does liberal internationalism mean? Here's a brief explanation. Liberal internationalism describes the approach that the U.S. has taken to preserve the institutions and norms of conduct established after the Second World War. On occasion, intervention is required to reestablish the principles of this liberal order where it has broken down. Okay, back to Nick. And I think throughout Washington and the Washington foreign policy com community, what you've got is liberal internationalists. Um, the realists uh, tend to be a bit more uh, locked up either in you know the Cato Institute or the Hoover Institution or in, in academia, in the case of someone like Stephen Walden. They don't get invited in quite the same way. And yet, with this liberal internationalist bias around the kind of staff availability to man your foreign policy executive, um, we've had a president who has pushed back against um, what he has referred to as the Washington playbook right, on, on foreign policy. So to what extent do you think you know, the, the likely candidates that we've got in this, this election um, are going to be run by their staff? or are going to run perhaps against what their staff is likely to be telling them? I don't think, I mean, in the end, the staff does what the president wants or the staff leaves. So it's not a question of being run by the staff or pushing back against the staff. As Xenia previously worked in the U.S. State Department, her comments can also shed light on how we can expect the front runners in the 2016 U.S. presidential race, those who are most likely to enter the Oval Office, how they might approach foreign policy. Hillary Clinton, we have a pretty good sense of what her foreign policy is likely, what her desire is at least. 
assuming events permit that, which is President Obama plus plus in a sense. So it's it's what we've seen from President Obama, but probably a little bit more hawkish, a little bit more interventionist, a little bit more willing to put America out there, say in Syria, than President Obama has. Um, Hillary tries, right? Hillary tries, you know, and I think so. So we have a pretty good sense on. The Trump side, and I'm just going to focus on Trump because he is the most lightly Republican candidate. Um, there are essentially two scenarios as I see it. Scenario one is that Trump decides that um, really it's all about him, it's all about the ego, that he doesn't really want to do all of the work that being president is. And so he's quite happy to essentially outsource a lot of the foreign policy to the people around him. Um, except when he's particularly motivated to do something. The other alternative is that Trump says, no, 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 I want to be very activist. I'm going to, you know, I am the president, and so it's all about me. Um, I'm going to totally engage. In which case, it's going to be really hard for him to put together a team because he's not going to get supported by the the Democrats. He's not going to be supported by the mainstream Republicans. Um, So people who know how to get the bureaucracy moving, how to get things done, aren't going to be part of the system. Um, he's going to find it very, very hard to get uh, his leading candidates as Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, etc., um, confirmed by the Senate. Um, and so you really are going to have this hollowing out where you've got the bureaucracy within the system that are fighting for what they know with this group of folk who really don't know how to get government done. And so that means the chaos will last for an awful lot longer Um, which is a little bit scary. What I would say is that the threat environment itself is unclear. Um, Right now, the United States is not facing an existential threat. It it has, uh, its security would appear to be intact. China is a rising power, but it hasn't risen. And to the extent that it's, it's making noises, it's not directly, certainly not directly threatening the United States. So there is more leeway, perhaps, than there would be normally for a president to pursue foreign policy objectives that he or she, she would want. My concern is that, you know, events have a way of, of, of messing things up. And if, if there were a, a terrorist incident if uh, in the United States, if, uh, take another possibility, which is perhaps more than a possibility, if the Syria situation doesn't resolve and Europe finds itself this, this summer flooded with refugees, not only from Syria, but throughout the developing world where incomes are vastly lower than uh, migrants could get in in Europe, I think the president, any president, would be not forced to intervene, but they will be likely to intervene. And And once presidents engage in the world, it's hard to predict what will happen. Okay. Now that we've sufficiently muddied the waters with questions, theories, and applications of theories on American power, let's return to Nick's earlier comments about how power is changing and how we should study it. Why does this matter? As we heard from Xenia and Lloyd, who the president is certainly matters, but so do the people around them, as well as who is in Congress, as well as what's happening in the world. So what sort of implications does the way we view power have? Well, Nick would say that the debate about American power being in decline is the wrong debate. 
it is completely missing the overall shift in power that's been going on in the last 40 years. But so what? Does it matter that people are debating whether the U.S. is in decline or not? Instead of seeking to understand if power, in the national and international sense, is in fact declining? Well, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because if you're a rising power, you may start to believe this and you become overconfident. And I think uh, in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, you saw some of that hubris from China, both domestically in terms of the way in which Chinese nationalism uh, started to exert pressures on uh, on the Chinese government to be more assertive in its foreign policy, and it, it, it did so with a, a series of provocations in the South China Sea around 2010. But also it's domestically dangerous um, for the United States. The United States may start to believe in its own decline and seek to forestall it. And we see a little bit in the United States today, in particular politicians, primarily on the Republican side, are playing to nationalistic fears. We cannot continue to be a weak country that's poorly led. Of the United States not being dominant. We risk losing the greatest country in the history of the world. Not being uh, the great power that it once was. Great powers do rise and fall. They overstretch themselves seeking to assuage a perception of decline and in doing so they hasten it. So ultimately it's not just the person of the president or any version of the people, it's also the way we understand power itself. So I'm joined right now by my co-hosts Chris and Denise and uh, we're just going to jump right into this. Chris, what did you think? Well, I was really interested in the idea of of American decline and is it going down? Do we have to worry about other countries stepping into the breach? And I, I'm really not sure that the U.S. can decline in the way that a lot of people think it can. A lot of times, people talk about sort of the the, uh, the decline of the British Empire the, and even the decline of the Roman Empire. If you think a bit about those places, you have a very small center, and their empire was the rest of the world. Now, the American Empire is a cultural empire, yeah, but it doesn't actually have much of the, it doesn't own much of the rest of the world other than like, say, I don't know, Iraq or somewhere like that. There's not that imperialism. It's more of a centralized power in one state and then the power that they're exerting on everyone else isn't part of their government. Unless we think about the military bases in Japan, in Germany, in the UK, it may not have an exact hold over that country, but it definitely has military influence. No, no, you're right. But I think if you look at, say, the British Empire, you know, uh, so I grew up in New Zealand, and New Zealand was like the breadbasket of the British Empire. So you had all this, and if you go farther back, of the mercantilism in Canada and actually what was the U.S., all these resources coming back to the homeland, whereas the U.S. actually has a huge amount of resources, 330 million people, so lots of human capital. They're self-sufficient in oil. You know, so... For America to actually be in decline and to become this kind of failed state that seems to me to be the end game of what people are predicting actually would be really hard. I think it can lose its influence, but for it to mess up that much, I just don't see how it could happen. Maybe I'm too much of a believer in entropy to to see that as as the American power being persistent over millennia going forward now. It, It just sort of seems like you look back at any great empire and any great centralized power that humanity has seen... They all fall eventually. 
They do, but they fall in a time of, again, if you think of, like, they sort of vulcanize, don't they? They break up. Like, the Roman Empire broke up, and it was because it had, everything was sort of coming into this center, whereas I think American power, even within the states, you know, you have New York on the East Coast, you have Los Angeles on the West, so you have cultural centers, economic centers, and, and uh, governmental centers. So that it's quite disaggregated. So I think there's, it's, there's less of a chance, say, compared to, like, the British Empire, where it's basically all on London. So, mm. so you think 100 years from now, the United States would still be the global hegemon and the world order would be the same? Probably not the global hegemon in the same way. It will still be a powerful country and it will still have influence by virtue of having huge amounts of military spending, I think. Uh, <clears throat> but I think it will be more like, the, America will be more like America is now than the British, than the UK is to the British Empire, if that makes mm. any sense. Part of what Nick talked about made me, made me think a little bit when you talked about how it's difficult to amass military power right now, be, particularly because of the technology that goes into it, you can't simply buy your way into power. You can't buy ships and fighter jets. Um, you have to develop those over perhaps even decades now because you mentioned like fifth generation fighter jets. That's something that has been growing, that, that program has been growing since World War II eventually. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of a bit of a military tech head, so... I can I can talk about fifth generation fighter jets if you want, but I probably would bore the audience. Um, I, I think that it's a it's a good point, but I think it kind of doesn't quite take into account that sort of all the asymmetric warfare you can get. Mm. So you know you can still shoot down a fifth generation fighter jet, incidentally, which don't if you're talking about the F thirty five don't actually work very well. You can still shoot it down with a fairly low rent Stinger missile that are easier to obtain. So. That kind of military dominance, you know, you see all the, the difficulties they've had in Iraq and Afghanistan actually defeating these relatively uh, technologically unsophisticated off, uh, people who oppose them. It's actually not that straightforward hmm. as just having military dominance. Although, at the end of the day, if we do talk about Iraq, um, even though we're struggling, we, we, the United States still kind of has a chokehold on that country and they're still kind of reigning supreme. So maybe military technology is difficult to develop and it may have its faults and we're still kind of battling it out to see who has the most power uh, militarily. At the end of the day, I think still like physical presence and being in a country, effectively occupying it, is still kind of another measure of power maybe. Hmm. This reminds me of how uh, of a fundamental difference from our perspectives between the three of us. Both of you have spent time in North America. I basically have only spent time in North America before moving here. And so it's been quite a shock for me to come to the understanding that people around the world interact with American power in such fundamentally different ways. And even to a certain extent, uh, someone who grew up in Kazakhstan or grew up in China or grew up in Colombia experienced the American government in a very different way than the way that I did as a, as a citizen, as a voter, and even as someone involved in political campaigns. It feels like when I'm talking with people that I'm talking about a completely separate entity. Hmm. And you guys have had a little bit more <coughs> of a global life. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, to my mind, having lived in the UK for 12 years, and then, uh, and then New Zealand and Canada before that, I think people's experience of American power is kind of, oh, the US is doing something unpleasant in the world again. I mean, sort of interventions and Kosovo aside, certainly when I was in New Zealand at the time, it was seen as a kind of a very local thing that didn't really affect much much the rest of the world, I don't think. And then, you know, you have Iraq and Afghanistan. It was seen as being a very strident power. And I think a lot of people, especially on the left in other countries, 
sort of see the, the idea, you know, they see, oh, American decline, that's great. You know, we want America to decline, or we're not that fussed because there is so much of a possible, especially if you look at the election season, a lot of uh, people see that the states, are, you know, the kind of leaders that are coming through are kind of a bit scary. And you don't want those people to have the fingers on the button or to who are we going to invade next kind of thing. I think I'd agree with you on that up until 2008 and Obama's election, and I feel that that really echoed around the world, and that kind of marked a shift in the perception of the United States. And suddenly, the U.S. wasn't, as you suggested, kind of this hard-fisted, boots-on-the-ground military force, and um, Obama's election really represented, or aimed to represent, a change from the Bush administration, and that resonated with people. I mean, that kind of follows on to a point I, I had sort of noted down, which is, does the U.S. really now need to intervene overseas? So if you look at the defense budget, it was sort of in the realm of 610 or 630 billion in 2014. That's a huge amount. And I'm not, I don't think you could necessarily assign all that budget to something else, but if you think about the drawing down of forces and the, the, the reduced influence or desired influence by people like Obama, and then even to some extent what Donald Trump's been saying, I think there's a case we made actually you could, if you diverted that budget, uh, you know, you could spend that's the equivalent of six departments of transport. You know, if you think about the infrastructure crisis in the state, does it make sense to spend all this money on renewing on, on an F-35 fighter, which doesn't work? And do they have another option? Like, do we have another option? <clears throat> How do you mean? Like, not... What, what, do you, what do you mean, like, the U.S. doesn't have to intervene anywhere? Well, it doesn't. I mean, I mean why, why, does the, why does the U.S., like, why it doesn't have to? Like, why does the U.S. have to intervene? Israel it, disagrees. It hasn't I mean, always intervened everywhere. There's yeah. been periods of isolationism. And then when we've gone back into the more kind of global approach. And so as it kind of waxes and wanes, why can't we have another maybe step back? Yeah, like the 1930s. Yeah. Again. I mean, if you think about, like, why does the U.S. need to have a presence in Iraq necessarily? I'm, I'm not saying it should or it shouldn't, but, like, from, the U from people's point of view, like, you know, they're self-sufficient in oil. The economy's not doing too badly. You don't need to be in Iraq. You don't need to be in Afghanistan. And arguably, for the reason you are going to be in those places, well, why don't you go into North Korea? Or why don't you... Because do they don't have oil. Yeah, they don't have... Well, yeah, but the U.S. doesn't even need oil anymore, if you know what I mean. If you, you know, because it's self-sufficient. You know, so mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're worried about human rights or worried about kind of uh, bringing... Uh, with, with liberal uh, internationalism, you, you kind of... That says, well, you should go into these other places. So you hear President Obama always saying that we can't be the world's police force. And the only reason he says that so often is because people are expecting the U.S. to be the world's police force. So that's what I, that's what I mean of like, how could we not? You know, the, the EU leans on the U.S. to be the military enforcer in so many circumstances where they're not willing to get involved. I think maybe the U.S. has put the EU in that position. I think it's kind of a mutual dependency. Um, I also think it's important um, that we do ask this question, but it matters who we ask. And if we're asking people who are running for office and office-seeking politicians, they really want to take advantage of that perception of American decline and the perception that the world, the U.S. needs to step up, um, which is also maybe kind of ingrained in American culture from my perspective of that. It's a bit paternalistic to the rest of the world, but it's our duty and it's honorable and we have to fight for freedom and all that. But politicians really want to capitalize on that need um, because that's who people want to vote for. They want to vote for people who they see as world leaders. Um, and also maybe those politicians in rhetoric are using a bit of fear-mongering, saying they have to do that. 
and nobody wants to vote for somebody who says, you know what, the world's fine, the U.S. is fine, let's just keep on going on. But isn't there a contradiction there? Because if you, I think Lloyd Gruber said that actually for the most part people don't care about foreign policy in elections. So do Americans actually care enough about the states being the world's police? But I think... No, we care about being the best. I mean, it, it's interesting that sort of I spent a lot of time in New Zealand, which is you know a country of four million people. It's really small, and there's you you talk to any any New Zealander and you say you're the best country in the world, they'll be like, what? They just, it is not something that would cross their radar. They they always say they punch above their weight and they want to achieve an impact in the world. But if you're a small country, and actually most countries are small, most countries are not U.S. They're not India. They're not Russia. They don't have nuclear weapons. They don't have you know if you're Belgium you're not going to be the biggest country in the world. I mean, if you're lucky, you might have had an empire. If you're Portugal or, or Britain or Spain, you might have had an empire, so you might have had a pop at being the best country in the world. There's so, so I recently heard about how there's been this resurgence in Persian pride that uh, as archaeologists basically have uncovered more proof of the, the Persian empire and what they were like as an empire and how dominant they were, that there's been this resurgence in Iran to really focus on that and say, look at how great we were. I think that that's really interesting because it's sort of like we, we're doing that actively in the U.S. right now. I think, though, what you're mentioning could also be more of kind of a counterculture movement and not necessarily something that's, like, um, endogenous, not something that's necessarily endogenously grown. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention that's to your SAT point. That's an SAT word right there. <laughs> wow. I knew, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say something dogness. And it's endogenous, <laughs> not dogness. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to mention to your point, Chris, is that um, we can look at Holland, and I'm a little bit biased to the Netherlands. My father's Dutch, but they did have an empire. They went to Africa. They were they were um, first. It was New Amsterdam before New York, and so they did have this big empire. They kind of explored the world, um, but maybe nowadays in the Netherlands we don't see that kind of empiring whatever culture um, and I think maybe we can relate that a little bit to the geography of the United States that it's very large um, but it's also quite isolated you've got Canada and Mexico and that's it and NAFTA is a thing but it's not maybe as much of a thing as the EU which is much more of a collective kind of mentality that we're all together we're all small um, and that we need to work together and I think as you were alluding to Denise it's a bit of chest thumping we are the only one and this is it and we don't even need to deal with our neighbors and whatever canada i mean that's interesting is sort of just riffing on your point a bit about having to work together so you know canada is sort of basically very similar to the states culturally economic there's no kind of i mean the last plans to invade canada i think were in the 1920s uh, or something like that i think that might be something for a future episode you know mexico is essentially uh, has a lot of the U.S. manufacturing outsourced to it, a lot of people from there. So, as you say, they're very friendly neighbors that the U.S. essentially has dominance over economically, militarily, if it ever really had to. Whereas if you're in Europe, you've been at conf in conflict with everyone next door to you for the last thousand years. Mm. And it's only it, within living memory as well, one of the worst conflict uh, in, in human history. And so you kind of, you have to work with other people. If you don't get on, if you're Belgian, you don't get on with the French, there's a problem. As, or if you're German, you don't get on with people, as we've seen, that you know, have been problems in the past. So you, you have to. Whereas I think you know, if, if you're isolated, like the States is, uh, you, uh, you can kind of get on with it and do your own thing, and it kind of, you turn in on yourself. 
love for you to join the conversation on Twitter. Tweet us at LSE underscore ballpark to share your thoughts on American Power or any of our episodes. This episode, we have a segment, President versus Congress, Winners and Losers in a Lame Duck Session. I took a look at the contentions over the closure of the Guantanamo Bay detention camp. So, Sophie, what is it really that we're talking about here? So at its core, this President versus Congress issue over the Guantanamo Bay detention camp revolves around the NDAA bill, the National Defense Authorization Act. This annual bill determines the budget and expenditures of the United States Department of Defense, which came under discussion in October 2015. In addition to the provisions of military spending, the most recent NDAA bill contains an expenditure and budget of over $607 billion and includes provisions regarding the transfer of the 112 detainees who remain in the prison to detention facilities in the United States, as well as the possible closure of the prison. So to give you a little bit of background regarding this issue, the prison was first opened in 2002 under President George W. Bush to hold the suspected Al-Qaeda and Taliban operatives. It was in June 2007 that the then still junior Senator Obama first stated his commitment to closing Guantanamo in a campaign rally. Here's Obama in 2008. We're going to lead by shutting down Guantanamo and restoring habeas corpus in this country so that we offer them an example. I have said repeatedly that I intend to close Guantanamo and I will follow through on that. However, in this most recent bill, the House and the Senate have both pushed to prohibit the president from closing the facility or transferring the detainees elsewhere. So this is really where the contentions originate and where this idea of a president versus its own Congress really comes into play. Okay, so why is this even an issue between Congress and the president? I mean, why is this a piece of, why does this friction exist between these two entities and not necessarily between the president and the Pentagon? Right. Well, let's take a look at a bit of a timeline. On October 22, 2015, Obama vetoed the original NDAA bill as part of a larger fight over defense budgeting issues. After going back to the drawing board, the House then approved a new version of the bill in early November with great bipartisan support and a vote of 370 to 58. The past bill, quote, prohibits the U.S. Defense Secretary from using any funds to close the Guantanamo facility, modify or build facilities in the United States to house the Guantanamo detainees or even transfer detainees into the U.S. for incarceration or trial. The Senate followed suit and passed the NDAA on November 10th. In an overwhelming 91-3 majority, the bill was passed in what was described as a faster-than-usual passage through Congress, designed in part to frustrate the White House. One news outlet referred to this as an act of the Senate blocking one of the last pathways to close Guantanamo. So in this battle of President versus Congress, Obama appears to have lost. And left with few other options, the President then signed the bill passed by the Senate on November 25, 2015, despite it keeping the detention center open. So let me get this straight. Basically, what Obama was trying to do was to defund it, and then that would be the way that it would close. But instead, the Senate was like, no, we're going to keep it open, we're going to fund it, we're going to put it in the NDAA and we're going to tie your hand so you have to sign it because it has all of this other funding. Exactly. That strategy really backfired on Obama, and he couldn't veto the bill the second time due to the political necessity of funding the Defense Department. 
Um, however, this also meant leaving the administration much less room for maneuver and a solution to this long-running Guantanamo problem. Pundits believe that this decision not to veto the bill a second time makes it more likely that Obama will choose to circumvent Congress to fulfill this longstanding pledge. However, others speculate that the president will not take executive action, claiming that he lacks the constitutional backing to do so, or that he spent all his political capital and room for negotiation on passing the Affordable Care Act. So this doesn't really seem to be a great situation between uh, the president and, and the House and the Senate. Could you talk a bit more about just how antagonistic it's getting between the between the Congress and, and the Commander-in-Chief? Yeah, not a great situation indeed. Um, the President has referred to this decision as, quote, unwarranted, counterproductive. When recently asked about what advice he would give to himself when first entering the White House, he said he would have closed Guantanamo on the first day. He's facing outspoken opposition from the Senate particularly from Senator John McCain, who's threatened a court battle if Obama bypasses Congress, even going so far as to say that Obama's actions are disgraceful. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan said Obama didn't even have the authority to veto the bill, as the passage of the bill in the House and the Senate was enough to override any executive veto. However, even while Congress remains firmly against the closure of the prison, the public does not seem as clear. A nationwide poll in March of this year found that 74% of Republicans thought the prisons should stay open, while only 38% of Democrats thought the same. Independents were almost equally divided on the issue. So even though Congress seems to like it, this has to be something that upsets a lot of people. You know, this isn't a universally accepted good thing, not only in the world, but in the U.S., Definitely. The prison is seen as a symbol of American overreach in confronting the terrorist threat. Diane Feinstein, Democratic senator from California, claims the prison is actually, quote, one of the best propaganda tools that terrorists have today, as its human rights abuses fuels militant recruiting. Human rights organizations such as Amnesty International or the American Civil Liberties Union argue that moving the terrorist suspects to U.S. soil doesn't even end the policy of indefinite detention. The indefinite detention of prisoners has become such a common practice that they are colloquially known as forever prisoners, just like we are now very comfortable with calling the prison Gitmo. The prison is also an incredibly expensive operation, costing the American taxpayers an estimated $7,600 a minute and $3.5 million per detainee. The Pentagon suggests that the cost per detainee at Guantanamo is 30 times more than that of the most secure detention facilities in the United States. Partisan tensions regarding this issue have also been reignited as Republican incumbents are using the prison and the fears surrounding it as a campaign theme in re-election races, arguing the transfer of prisoners equates their release and, quote, only makes it easier for them to rejoin the fight against America. The antagonism regarding the closure of Guantanamo Bay detention camp epitomizes the very gridlock that recurs between President and Congress. The failure to close the prison is a stain on Obama's record and an unfulfilled promise of his presidency, one that was supposed to be an expected break from the Bush era. So for our last at bat, we now have a segment we call I Predict a Riot. We're going to talk about our predictions and prognostications on any of the topics we've been discussing today. Chris, why don't you start us off? Cool. Thanks, Sophie. Um, 
Mine is, you know, caveated with the idea that I'm not a foreign policy expert at all, so feel free to write in if you think I'm completely wrong. Uh, I think if, if Hillary Clinton is elected in November, and I think probably she will be, I think we're going to see a slightly more muscular U.S. foreign policy overseas, mainly to compensate for the fact there's little she can actually do, do at home with a divided Congress. So she doesn't seem to me to have any big, you know, big domestic policy things that she can do. So she will be a little more interventionist or willing to sort of put American power out a little bit more here and there than we've seen under Obama. So my prediction goes a little bit farther back in the timeline than if she's elected to president. But if she's the Democratic nominee, I predict that we will see a Benghazi-themed ad. Uh, I also could imagine the, her emails um, being another element intertwined with that. Because even though voters, as we've discussed, and as some of the, the interviewees have mentioned, voters aren't um, basing their vote on foreign policy, this is a unique moment where I think a Republican strategist could see an opportunity to in reintroduce the Benghazi story as a way to chip away at her expertise in foreign policy. So we've been talking a lot about foreign policy today, um, but in the Ninth Democratic debate that happened not too long ago, we saw discussions of trade, minimum wage, and the fight for 15 really dominated. Maybe foreign policy isn't as much of a priority in this stage of the race. Um, and to quote a political strategist, maybe it really is all about the economy, stupid. So that's my prediction. All right, it's time to wrap up this episode of The Ballpark. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Denise Barron and Chris Gilson, and our interviewees, Nick Kitchen, Xenia Wickett, and Lloyd Gruber. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donselman, that's me, and also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. We love them. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be talking about the almighty dollar and making sense of monetary policy. And look out for those extra innings on why we picked the name The Ballpark for this podcast. Thanks for listening.